Amen. Thanks for praying with me. I'm excited to jump into the scriptures with you this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is the second uh, book in the New Testament. And so if you turn there, we're going to be in chapter 10 together in just a few moments. And if you want to use your Bible app, that's fine on your phone, or the scriptures will also be on the screen behind me. But Mark chapter 10 is where we'll read uh, in just a few minutes. But uh, I want to begin this morning with a question for us to ponder uh, together. And here it is. What do you find to be most precious in your life? What do you find to have more value to you than anything else in the world? And here's another way that we can ask this question. If we want to get real honest when it comes to the answer to this question is this. What causes you anxiety in your life? What do you worry about, are anxious about losing or missing out on? What keeps you up at night? That, that question might help us pinpoint what we find to be most precious, right? So my son Leland, uh, uh, just two weeks ago, uh, had his first day of kindergarten, and Leland is riding the bus to school, all right? So on that first day of school, my wife and I, we walked him to the bus stop, and obviously Leland is, is one of the most precious things in our life. And so we're at the bus stop and, you know, the bus pulls up. And I remember I went down to give my son a hug and he's like, dad, I have to go. And he doesn't let me hug him. And he gets on the bus and the bus leaves. And I'm like, am I just supposed to magically think this bus is going to arrive at the right school and he's going to get to the right class. And then seven hours later, magically, he's going to appear on this bus at this bus stop, you know, like watching him leave on the bus, it caused us anxiety because he's so precious to us. And of course, it's no, Alan, it's not magic. You know, kids have been doing this for decades. He's gonna go to school and he's gonna come back. And of course, he showed up back at the same bus stop. He was just fine. He loved the bus. But because we love him so much, we, we felt that anxiety. And so what do you find most precious in your life? And of course, most of us would say, well, yeah, loved ones, family. But if we evaluate our anxieties in life, I think we might find some more subtle things that we find to be really precious to us. You know, maybe something like our financial security. You know, for many of us, finances are a huge source of anxiety. You know, especially when the bills are more than the income or when you're in debt, or when you have experience in your life wondering if there's gonna be food on the table, finances can be a huge source of anxiety. And so when you have some sort of financial security, it can be so precious to us that we're anxious over losing it. Or maybe it is our wealth. God has blessed us with abundance. It's precious to us. And so we fear losing it, right? We live in a culture that preaches to us that success equals expansion, right? That's what our culture says. Success equals expansion. And so we feel like if I have wealth, I have to expand my wealth to be successful. So maybe we have anxiety over the expansion of it. 
Maybe it's our reputation. We care so deeply about what people think about us. It matters to us what people think about us. And so our reputation is precious. And so maybe we feel anxiety over what people are thinking of what we're wearing or what they think about our ideas or if they're judging the way we parent our kids or our lifestyle or how we practice our faith or whatever it is. It could be our job performance at work that's precious to us. It could be the behavior of our kids that causes anxiety. It could be our social media influence. I don't know, whatever it is. But in this fallen world, there is a correlation between what we find to be precious and anxiety. It's one of the greatest ironies in life. The things that we believe will set us free and give us joy, actually enslave us and bring us anxiety. Do you get that? That's the greatest ironies. The things that we actually think will set us free and bring us joy actually enslave us and bring us anxiety, right? Think of uh, our reputation, example from earlier. We believe that if everyone thought well of us, we'd be set free, I'd have confidence in myself. And and that would bring me joy, but we're actually enslaved to it. We can't help but replay every interaction in our heads out of fear of what I said or how people maybe perceived me in that interaction, right? So the things in life that I believe will set me free and bring me joy actually enslave me and bring me anxiety. And this morning, I wanna show us that Jesus wants to be the thing that we find to be more precious than anything. And when he has that place in our heart, that that is where we find a hundred times more joy and freedom than anything that this world can bring us. A hundred times. I'm excited this morning because we're gonna jump back into this long sermon series we've been in through most of the year called King Jesus. And if you've been with us through the summer and part of the uh, spring, um, you know that we divided this sermon series so far, we have divided it into two different chapters. And what we've been doing in these two chapters is laying out a theological foundation. And what we mean by that is just rehearsing some truths about who God is and who we are according to the Bible. And so chapter one, we called the king rejected. The king rejected. And so we studied how God created us as humanity in his own image. And what that means is that our life's purpose, the source of our joy was to live our lives imaging God representing God, with God at the center, glorifying him. That would be our purpose. And so we said, in love, God created me not to be the center of my story. He created me for him to be the center of my story. But the truth is we rejected that as humanity. We rejected God, and this is what we call sin. We said, God, I... I don't want my life's purpose to be you. I want my life's purpose to be 
me. And so we studied how mankind fell into sin. And we said this, that in sin, I have abused God and creation and others to be the center of my story. And so in response, when God saw that humanity had done this, God banished us from his presence, from his kingdom. We wanted to be without God, and God said, I'm gonna give you what you want. And he excused us from his presence, and then the world fell into brokenness and sin. That was chapter one, we studied that. And so then we went into chapter two, and we entitled this, The King Redeems. And we saw in the scriptures that God is eager to make things right. And he's eager to restore us back into a right relationship with him, back into his kingdom. And so what he does is he sends his son Jesus to do what needs to be done so we can be restored back to his kingdom. So we can be children of God. And then Jesus also teaches us again the way of his kingdom. What does it look like to live our lives, not with ourselves at the center, but with God at the center? And so when we've been made right with God through Christ and when we, have, we start to live our lives in a way that God originally intended under his authority, according to his word, with him at the center, that is where we find true joy and freedom. So that was our first two chapters. Quick recap that we've been doing. So if you missed some of those sermons or you wanna go back and, and hear more about that, go to our website. You can listen to all of the beginning of this series. But if I could just summarize these two chapters in the most simple form, it would be this. Jesus is king. He has saved us. And now we follow him as children of God, knowing there is only pain when we live for ourselves and there is only joy when we live for him. Jesus is king. And so today we start chapter three. We're calling it The King Reigns. And my goal for this chapter is to build on top of everything we just talked about and ask the question, what does it now look like in our lives to live with Jesus as our Lord and our King? No longer living our lives for ourselves and what I think is right and what I think is true and what I want, but with Jesus at the center, submitting to him, and so I wanna start chapter three today talking about what our king truly wants from us. What does he want from us? And here it is, I'm just give it to you right now. Our king wants to be what is most precious to us. He wants to be the thing that we treasure more than anything else. And it is right here in this question where we find out if, if Jesus is our king or not, it's right here where we find out what we truly believe. Do I believe that my joy is found in Jesus being the center of my entire life or do I still believe the lie that my joy is found in me being the center of my entire life? It's right here we're gonna wrestle with this. So in Mark 10, in our scripture this morning, Jesus has an encounter with someone in, in front of his disciples that forces everyone, it's gonna force us this morning, I promise you, to wrestle with this question. All right, so let's read the encounter. Mark chapter 10. I'm gonna read uh, starting for uh, verses 17 to 22 to start. 
says this, and as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. There it is. And the man said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So key right there. Looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, when we read this text, the first thing that you might be wondering is, is Jesus preaching a gospel of works here? Right? Is Jesus saying that to be saved, you need to keep the Ten Commandments and sell everything and give to the poor? Like, there's the contract. Keep the Ten Commandments, sell everything to your poor, and you get to be saved. I will cancel out all your sin. You're good. You get to go to heaven. It does not matter the condition of your heart. All that matters is what you do. Do the right thing, and you get to heaven. Is that what Jesus is preaching? And let me just tell you, the answer is a clear no. Actually, what Jesus is teaching is the exact opposite of that, and that's abundantly clear in the next few verses that we're gonna read. But, but before we go there, I just wanna zoom in on what Jesus did in this little interaction. The text says here that when Jesus brought this guy's wealth into the equation, that he walked away disheartened. Now, it's an interesting word. In in the Greek, this kind of carries two meanings to it. Uh, One meaning that we see in the text here is this word disheartened means to be shocked or appalled. So this guy was surprised that Jesus said this and brought this in to the equation here. But it also means to be gloomy, to be dark and sorrowful. Another word that we saw there in Matthew, this is a word used to describe a dark, stormy, gloomy sky. Right? So, so the man was depressed because what Jesus did, look at this, was he went after what he found to be most precious. He created a scenario with this man where he would have to choose if he'd rather hold on to his riches or would he rather have eternal life. Effectively, what Jesus was saying was, if you want eternal life, then I have to be your God. I have to be the object of your worship. I have to be what is most precious to you and nothing else. Else, What Jesus did was point out the God that this guy worshiped, his true religion. He said, if you wanna follow me, you have to stop following that God. You have to follow me. And this guy was disheartened 
because he was not willing to forsake his God. You know, and it, it forces us to ask the question, if, we're, if we were having this conversation with Jesus, if this was us, what would Jesus point out for us? What would be the thing that he would say, you gotta forsake this God in your life? You wanna follow me? You know, we live in one of the wealthiest counties of the wealthiest nation this world has ever seen. Maybe what Jesus said to this man is what he would say to us. Give up your money, your houses, your comforts, your businesses, your, your assets. Right? And we can't even fathom that Jesus would call us to do that. It's actually kind of shocking and appalling, right, that Jesus would do that. So in, in many ways, to that idea, we... We kind of have the same reaction as this man. But I don't know, maybe it's something different for you or for me. I'll be honest with you, when it, when it comes to me, you know what I think Jesus would point out for me, and I really don't wanna share this with you, to be honest with you, but I'll share, I'll be honest with you so you can be honest with yourself. You know, I think Jesus would say, Alan, you need to give up your desire for fame. You know, your desire to be seen as successful. Ah, oh, you planted this little church and look, it's grown into this massive thing. And look, look at what he did. Alan, you need to give up that. I need to be enough for you and you need to be okay with no one knowing who you are outside of your church family and your neighbors. If I'm honest, I think Jesus would say that to me. You know what I think Jesus would say to most of us? I think he would maybe say something like, you need to give up your desire to fit in. To fit into this world. This, this desire that when the world looks at you, they don't see anything abnormal. They don't see someone who believes in a God that created all of this and has saved us in and through Christ and has given us a message of reconciliation to proclaim to the world. They don't see that. They see someone who fits right in. And I think Jesus might say, you need to give that up to follow me because to follow me, you're not gonna fit in at all. And what do you think Jesus would say to you? What is the thing Jesus would say that would tempt you to walk away disheartened because he poked the one thing that is most precious to you? Now, I know what most of us are thinking in the room, right? Alan, you are, you are beating me up up there. I get what you're saying, but what you're suggesting is, is easier said than done. Right? I can't just look at my heart and say, you know, change, like heart, change. Those desires inside, like get out. We, we can't command our hearts to do that. And, and I think all of us would say, wait, I struggle with all kinds of stuff, Alan. There's a lot of things that I probably find more precious than Jesus. And if I were to be honest with you, and if I were the guy having the conversation with him, he'd list out a ton of things for me. I mean, is, if this is what is required for salvation, as it seems you're suggesting, then who can be saved? 
And that angst that you feel with this is exactly what the disciples felt. They were all crowded around Jesus. They were watching this interaction. And that angst that we feel, that's what they felt. And I want you to see what happens in our text as we continue. Because what Jesus is gonna do is turn this into a profound teaching moment for his disciples. Look at this. Mark 10, I'm gonna read verses 23 to 25. It says, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because their wealth is their God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, to have no other God before our Father in heaven. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is affirming our angst here. The requirements to enter the kingdom of God to be saved are are massive. The, The requirements are literally that there must be nothing in our life that we love or desire more than Jesus himself. In our text, wealth was the example, but fill it in. We must have no other gods before him. It's the first commandment. What chance do we have of making it? What is our chances? Well, about the same probability of a camel fitting itself through the eye of a sewing needle. In other words, no chance. It's impossible. Continue in our text, verses 26, 27. And they, the disciples, were exceedingly astonished said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Right, this is how we know that Jesus is not preaching a gospel of works. I mean, if we're going to be saved, if we're gonna be welcomed into his kingdom, God must intervene solely on the basis of his grace. Because if it were left to us, it would be impossible. No one would be saved. And so this is the gospel equation that we have to to see here, okay? I need you to get this. God is not saying, deal with your heart deal with the false gods inside of you, and then I'll accept you. Then I'll save you. He's not saying that. No, God is saying, I'm going to save you. I'm going to do what is impossible for you to do. And in doing so, I'm gonna break the power that these false gods have over your heart and show you that I'm way better. Way better. That's the equation we see. It's not deal with your heart and then we'll get you in. It's let's get you in and I'm going to start to deal with your heart. So I just wanna pause here. Like if if you're here and you're not sure if you believe in Jesus or not, you're wrestling through what you believe about God. I just wanna make sure that you are clear about what the gospel of Jesus is. 
You need to know something about God, that, that God is good. And here's how we know that he's good. It's because everything God commands of us, he supplies for us. Everything God commands of us, he supplies for us. God commands that we have perfect righteousness in order to be right with him and to be back into his kingdom. We can't supply that, but he can, right? We are sinful. It's impossible for us to please God on our own. We have hearts that desire all kinds of things over and above God. And so God sends his son, Jesus, and here's what Jesus does. He lives a life of perfect righteousness with no sin. Jesus has something that we need, perfect righteousness. And out of love for us, here's what Jesus does. He switches with us. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness, right? He supplies what we need. He willingly allowed himself to be crucified on a cross so that God's anger toward our sin would go onto him and then gives us his righteousness so God's delight in his son's righteousness would come onto us, which allows God to say, you're welcome into my kingdom. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, all of that sin against God, it was dealt with, it was forgiven, it was done with. Like, this is the gospel. We are not made right with God by doing it ourselves, figuring out a way, following a bunch of commands. We're only made right with God through Jesus. And if you want that to be applied to you, to count for you. We're, we're told all we need to do is, is confess our need of it and say, God, I am a sinner. I, I, I do need your grace and your mercy through Christ. And then it says just to trust in Jesus. Have faith that this is what Jesus has done for you. And so this morning, if, if you wanna pray with someone about that or if you, if you wanna pray that for the first time, we're gonna have prayer ministers up front after our service and they would just be delighted uh, to pray with you. But here's the glorious thing that happens when God does in our hearts what is impossible for us to do in our hearts, for all of us. He, he sets us free from the bondage of all the things that we find to be more precious than him. Remember in the beginning, I, I told you that when Jesus has this place in our heart, that is where we find a hundred times more joy and freedom than, than anything else in the world, right? It's exactly what Joe read for us out of Philippians 3 earlier in our service, where Paul lists all of his accomplishments and all of the reasons why he has a reason to boast in his religious elitism and how his self-righteousness. And Paul says, listen, now that I have seen Christ, all of that is complete rubbish. And, and I want you to know something, that God did not wait for Paul to believe that before he saved him. Hey, go read the book of Acts. Paul was on his way to go murder some Christians and God saved him out of nowhere. Grace, mercy, and then he worked on Paul's heart. 
And Paul now stands there in Philippians 3 and says, everything else in the world is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. See, before knowing Christ, we were enslaved to the things of the world. All right, and here's, here's what that means. The things of the world were your only option for joy and purpose before Christ. Right? In our sin, we're separated from God, right? So he could not be our source of joy and purpose while we were separated from him. All right, so just imagine this with me. Imagine that we're in a famine and you're hungry and, and you're malnourished. All right, and I came up to you and I said, hey, listen, I'm gonna take you to a grocery store and you can get as much food as you want. This grocery store is a huge variety. You just fill your cart with whatever you want. It's a huge store, bigger than you could ever imagine. And so I take you to the store and the store is filled with all of these packages of, of different colors and shapes and sizes and, and brands and you fill your cart up and take it home and realize that in all of these packages, there's nothing but white bread. Now, white bread, at least to me, is, is comfort food. It tastes good at first. It, it feels good in your belly as it's going down. It, it fills up your belly, but it doesn't give you any nutrients. You'll still be malnourished. If this is all you had to eat, you would still be hungry. But the problem is, it's the only option. It comes in different shapes and sizes but it's all I have to draw from to try to fill the hunger inside of me. There's no other food available. I'm trapped, malnourished, trying to feed my hunger on things that is not good for me. So before knowing Christ, we were enslaved to the things of the world. It was our only option. Our only option to try and find joy is things like Wealth, things like reputation, things like a great career. It's the only option that we have. But Christ has done the impossible in us, has set us free from our bondage to the world, and has now made available to us the joy that we were originally created to live with. It's like Christ is saying, let me introduce you to a place called Whole Foods right, where it's just filled with vegetables and fruits and meats and fine wine and, and cheeses and everything to nourish your body and, and feed your soul. See, Christ has set us free from the prison of our joy being dependent on the world, right? Get that for a second. He has set us free from the prison, the chains of our joy only being dependent on the world, and he is leading us to where we will find a hundred times more joy than anything this world can offer us. And that number that I'm using, a hundred times, is not arbitrary. Let's continue in our text, verses 28 to 31. It says, Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. I think Peter was being sincere here. Jesus, we left our families, we left our jobs, we left our homes to, to follow you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands 
for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, heaven, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Here's what Jesus is saying. When you allow me to be what's most precious to you in this life, there is more joy available to you than you could ever imagine. There will still be persecutions. While we're still on this side of glory, we will still live in a fallen world and we'll face tough circumstances. Jesus is not promising more money or material prosperity, but Jesus is saying, imagine a life where your circumstances and the things of the world have nothing to do with your joy. Absolutely nothing. Like your wealth. Imagine where your your money had nothing to do with your joy or your peace. Whether you had a little of it or a lot of it. It's just a, a tool to be used to let God be the center of your life. It's like having a screwdriver in your garage. That's it. I don't get joy from my screwdriver in my garage. It's there to be used. Or your reputation, what people think about you. Imagine if they had no effect on your joy or your contentment in life or whatever else we identified earlier as the things that we find to be more precious than Jesus. Imagine if it had no power over your contentment and your joy. This is the hundredfold joy that Jesus offers and the world can't touch it. Isaiah 57 verses 20 and 21 says, but those who still reject me are like the restless sea, which is never still, but continually churns up mud and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked. Living a life without Jesus at the center is a recipe for restlessness. And this is why I love what we read about Jesus in our text this morning, especially in verse 21. Did you catch this earlier? Look at this in verse 21. Jesus is with this man who had run up to him and Jesus looking at him, look at this, it says, loved him. He loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell everything that you have. I love how the scripture shows us Jesus' motivation for saying what he said. It was in love of this man. Jesus knew that because this man valued his wealth more than anything else in life, it actually was a chokehold of anxiety and misery for him. And it was blocking him from tasting true joy that was right before him. Grace Hill, Jesus wants to be our Lord and our King, over every single area of our life. And he promises a hundredfold joy if we submit everything in our life to his Lordship and his rule. And in God's grace, he has done what needs to be done to save us and to set us free from that bondage. He has set us free and now he wants to start working on our hearts. And so this fall, as we continue in chapter three of our sermon series, I wanna go on a journey with you and exploring what it looks like to take 
the things that are most precious to us in this world and, and give it to Jesus and let him rule over it. And so we're gonna get real specific this fall. I actually wanna show you the schedule uh, up on the screen. Uh, so next week, starting on September 15th, we're gonna talk about what does it look like for Jesus to be Lord over our time and our plans. September 22nd, we're gonna talk about what does it look like for Jesus to be Lord over our work and our vocation. September 29th, what does it look like for Jesus to be Lord over my family? October 6th, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord over my reputation? October 13th, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord over sexuality and romance? Be a fun one. October 20th, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord over my money? Right, so I hope you'll hang with us because what I wanna do is I wanna take the next six weeks basically to say what does it mean to apply what we just talked about to my life very specifically in these areas. And so I hope you'll join us. But for this morning, this is what I want you to take away. God has done what is impossible for you. He has supplied for you what he has commanded of you. He doesn't wait for you to change before he wants to welcome you back into his kingdom. He has offered salvation to us. He has broken the chains that the things of this world have over us. And now he wants to begin to show us how he is so much better than anything the world has. Grace Hill, our God is good. He's gracious, he's patient, and he's after your joy. So let's pursue that this fall. Let me pray. God, as we mentioned earlier, I know that if any of us could just open up our hearts and have them be exposed to all of the things that we desire and love and want and, and find is, is more precious than you, Lord. I, I know the list would be long. And that can be discouraging. It can make us feel like I'm, I'm hopeless. There's nothing I can do. And Lord, it's kind of the point. You want us to come to you weak, defeated, get on our knees, say, Jesus, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. I have tried so hard to change this heart and it is stubborn, it's impossible. Jesus, I need you to change it. I need you to do what is impossible for me to do and God, all things are possible with you. So God, I just pray right now, if there's anyone in this room right now that's never trusted you, maybe they've thought they've trusted you, maybe they have sought to follow your commands. Maybe they have sought to read your word. Maybe they've called themselves a Christian their whole lives, but they've never trusted you.
They've always felt like they had to have their heart changed before they would be acceptable to you. And Lord, I I pray that you would just gently but firmly move their heart to know that they can't do that work in their own heart, that you have to do that. And would you let them come before you weak and exposed and ready to finally trust you? God, would you bring about new life in this room? As I said earlier, there'll be prayer ministers up front. If you need to come forward and and pray with them after this service, God, I pray that you would draw them to come pray. We love you, God. We pray that as we sing now, it would just bring praise and glory to your name.